The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you're new, we're in the middle of a series called Things We Love. And uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to just like, you know, pull back the curtain and show you our hearts as a church. Because the best way to get to know somebody is not to figure out what they know, all this information. You know, I, I know a ton of stuff that has very little impact on my life. I can tell you a lot about random American presidents. really doesn't change my day. But what I love changes my day. It changes my priorities, the direction I'm going in. So as a church, we want to say, hey, here are the things we love. And we've been doing this together. We've been looking at God. Why do we love God? Why is that important? And his word, the place he's called us to, this city. Last week was probably, if this was a sandwich, last week was the meat of that sandwich or the cucumber if you're vegan. But like this is the heart of the sandwich was the gospel. We love the gospel and that changes the way we do everything in this place, that Jesus came to save sinners. So now the rest of this series is kind of a pivot. The rest of this series is fruit of the gospel. So today we're going to be talking about how the gospel impacts us in our here and now. Like, what, what are we supposed to do? Okay, we've been saved. We've been forgiven of our sins. Do we just wait for the train to come when we're going to go to heaven and we're going to hang out on a cloud and play a harp? Like, what, what's the plan here? What's your angle, God? So we're going to see that today, and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to, I'm going to read that passage. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, Matthew 5, 13. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to pray. All right, so Matthew 5, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starting in verse 13. Hear the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, you have us here in this place, in this time for a reason, Lord. Life can be really confusing. But God, I pray that as we look to your word, You'd help us to to take hold of the identities that you want us to have. I pray that we'd be stirred up um, to good works as fruit of the gospel so that people might see what we're doing and give you glory. Guess all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we first meet Jane Letitia, she's standing on a bridge in 1815, 400 miles from her home, looking down at the river below, trying to muster up the courage to jump. See, Jane wasn't a depressed person, but her life had recently fallen apart. Her husband, uh, John Frederick, was this young Dublin socialite. He was rising up in the uh, Dublin Corporation, and like they were really going to make something of themselves. They were young, they were 18, they had two kids, everybody knew who they were, they were really popular. But one day after work, John Frederick was hanging out, and a guy by the name of O'Connell was a people's liberator, started talking smack about the Dublin Corporation for which John Frederick worked. And so since it's 1815, dueling's still legal. So John Frederick challenges O'Connell to a duel. 
And O'Connell's huge. He's twice his size. But he's a notoriously bad shot, and he doesn't want to do it. He's like, no, thank you. I don't want to do it. But the crowd, they goad. They push. Come on, man. Come on. you got to do it. So finally, after a lot of goading, O'Connell gives in, and they head out to the alley to duel. Now, John Frederick is a great shot, and he's famous for it. He wins the coin toss. They head out there. John Frederick takes the first shot and uncharacteristically misses. O'Connell, who, remember, he doesn't want to be here. He takes a gun, and he aims low, trying to miss, and just, hey, let's call it a day. Let's leave. Funny thing when you're a bad shot, though, he misses, and he hits John Frederick right in the groin, killing him two days later. And now, Jane Letitia, his widow, is standing over a bridge, thinking her only hope to get peace is to die. Uh, Her great-great-grandson, reading her journal, said this, pain was her only companion. She looked at the horizon, and all she saw was despair. So she's thinking, this is my hope for peace. This This is all I can do. But as she's looking down, she notices on the opposite bank of the river below a farmer. A farmer who's completely oblivious to her, by the way. He's working. He's working really hard. And this is how her great-great-grandson describes this. He, the farmer, he was meticulous, absorbed, skilled. He displayed such a pride in his work that the newly turned furrows looked as finely executed as the paint strokes of an artist's canvas. For those of you who don't know what furrows are, there's like the hedges thing. I don't really know what they are either, but something farmers do. (laughs) Despite herself, Jane Lucretia was fascinated. Slowly, she was drawn into the plowman's pride until admiration turned into wonder and wonder into rebuke. What was she doing collapsing into self-pity? How could she be so wrapped up in herself when she had two small children who were dependent on her? Rebuked and braced, she got up, returned to Dublin, and resumed life, saved from suicide, and reinvigorated for life by the sight of work well done. Uh, Her great-great-grandson went on to say that a few weeks later, that wonder turned into uh, questions, and she came to faith in Christ, and remarried, had a family, and her great-great-grandson is the greatest theologian that you've never heard of, named Oz Guinness, Um, yes, from that Guinness family, Um, and they lived a faithful life. And the question I want to ask this morning is this, how does that happen? How in the world does a woman who thinks that death is her only escape, that's all she's got, just from seeing work done well, all of a sudden wants to live? All of a sudden, she's reinvigorated for life. There's wonder. There's like, what, what am I doing? She's even rebuked. How does that happen? Well, the way that happens is when we as Christians take hold of our identity as creators, we, we point people back to the world they were made to live in. When you work well, when you work with excellence, your creativity is a signpost. It's a giant breadcrumb leading people home. It's saying, hey, you were made for this world. And that's what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we're going to look to today. But before we jump into that, before we look at our call to be creative, I just want to just kind of address the elephant in the room here. Uh, I'm not creative at all. (laughs) And some of you are like, wait a second, like, what does this mean? You want us to embrace our identities as being creative? Like, are are we going to be handing out guitars in the lobby and like coloring books? Like, what, what in the world? What are you talking about? Creativity. I don't get it. Well, you see, that's a very narrow definition of creativity. 
Creativity, it includes those things for sure, but it's much bigger. It's what we do. It's what we make of this world. And we're going to see here what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is this. Creativity is the family business. It's, it's the family of God's family business. And so when you belong to the family of God, you get that identity and it flows out of that. So we're going to look at that. But the second objection that you're saying is like, okay, Craig, I hear what you're saying. It makes sense. I do not see that in that passage. Like, are you making this up? I hope not, but we're going to look. So it's important before we look at this, we need to understand a little bit of context about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first public declaration in the Gospel of Matthew. This is him going public to the world. Matthew has set the table saying, hey, the king has come. He's come to save sinners. He's come to make them new creation. He's come to make things new. And so now that king opens his mouth and he starts talking. He's saying, hey, if you're my follower, this is what life looks like. And he gives people an identity. Listen to what he says. You, my followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Jesus here, he's using language that's taken directly from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we find when God makes people originally, he too gives them a mandate. He gives them an identity that gives them a job. This has often been called by theologians the cultural mandate. Let's read it for a second. I'm in Genesis 1, looking at verses 27 and 28. This is what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. This is what happens in Genesis. God makes people. He's been making things left and right all the creation week. Day one, make something, says it's good. Day two, and finally we get to day six. And day six, God does something totally different. He makes a piece of creation in his image. See, whales are great. Trees are lovely. They're, it says that in the text. God made them and says they're good. But they're not in the image of God. People are. That's our identity. What, what does that mean, being in the image of God? It means we're reflectors. We show the world what God is like. God's put a, a, an imprint of himself in creation. And so when we do things, we show the world what God is like. Well, what are we supposed to do? Right here. This is the, what they call the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Here we go. Subdue it and have dominion over it. And this, this, why we call this the cultural mandate is because those two words, subdue and have dominion over it, is where we eventually get the Latin word for culture from. You see, culture was originally like an agricultural word. It was like, hey, you don't just leave the ground alone. You subdue it, you work it, and you bring things out of it, like vegetables so that we can eat. Eventually, the French came along and took that word and applied it to people. They said, no, 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 we shouldn't leave people as they are. We should work them and put facts in their mind, take the raw materials that are there and work it to make them cultured. And so what Jesus is saying, or what God is originally saying in the Garden of Eden is this, hey, be culture makers. Be culture makers. Why? Take the raw materials of this creation and make something out of it. Well, why? Because I'm a creating God. When you create, when you take your identity as create, creation seriously, you're going to start making things. You're going to do things. Not, not like coloring and glitter. You're going to like start businesses. You're going to work. You're going to do things. And, and doing that reflects who God is. And so you see, now we go from Genesis all the way to Matthew, and some stuff happens in between there. Namely, sin. Sin comes onto the picture and messes up everything. 
And so now we do work funny. Like we're not doing it to reflect God and glorify God. We're doing it to reflect and glorify ourselves. Um, Amy and I watched this documentary this week about one of Mexico's most popular luchadors. And this luchador had a really terrible life. He uh, was born in poverty, was abused, was beat up, and so he started working out. He's like, nobody's going to mess with me. And so he starts working out, he gets strong, he starts wrestling. He eventually becomes the most popular luchador in Mexico. And he's, he's walking out in front of the crowds, and he's like, look at me now. You're not going to hurt me. You're not going to beat me up. I'm better than you. Look at me now. And there's a sense where you're like, that's great. Like, he, he, was, he was abused, and now he's taking care of it. He worked, and he made something. But there's another sense of that where that's really tragic. He, he took a craft, he took work, and he made it all about himself. And that's what we do. That's the world that Jesus is calling his followers into to say, hey, work and cultivate that place, that broken world. See, Jesus knows full well, like he's, he's coming up against our expectations here. See, like the king has come. He's here. He's here to fix things. He's here to make things new. He's here to save us. Let's just wait for our train. We're out of here, folks. And Jesus says, no, stay. Why? Because you're salt and light. Stay and be a light here to show people how they were made to be. I'm putting Eden people in Babylon. I'm taking people who are from the future. Like the kingdom of God has just been deposited into them. They're new. They're new creation. They have new hearts, new desires. And I'm putting them in a broken world. Why? Because I forgot about you? No. No. So that people would see good deeds, your good deeds, and be like, whoa, God's pretty awesome. Like, what? So like some of us, we think this world and we think our calling and our vocations are like secondary. No, no, no. God did this on purpose. He has so wired the world that you would work in it so people would see your work as a new creation and be like, that's different. The way you're approaching your, your job is different than what I'm doing. Like, you're the top performer in this department, but you're still humble. Like, you're still, you're still cleaning the bathroom. Like, what, why are you like that? Hey, you make really good art that people, like, creates wonder, and you're not, like, arrogant. Like, what is it about you? It's, it's supposed to create this transcendent. Because, you see, here's how we do jobs now in this broken world. We flip it around. You see, in Eden, what happens is this. We're given an identity. God says, hey, you're in the image of God. And work just flows out of that. You can't help but work and create and do things. But how we live today is this. We work and we do things, and then we think we get our identity from that. I mean, I know we say this, but you're at a party. Hey, what, what do you do? Oh, I'm a... Fill in the blank. See, we get our identity from what we do. How many of you wanted to come out to L.A. and make something of yourself? No, that's backwards. See, we're in the image of God, and our work flows out of that. That's where identity comes from. Identity doesn't come from what we do. And Jesus says when you actually take hold of that, when you live like that, you're showing people who also are in the image of God. They were made to live in a place called the Garden of Eden with God. Their lungs were made to breathe that air, and they're living in a foreign world that's broken and messed up. And you can say, hey, I'm back there. I live there. You can get back there too. So Jesus wants you to do this. He wants you to embrace your identity as a creative. Not to serve yourself, but to be a signpost, pointing back. Because work done well really can make a difference. But you see, in this passage, Jesus wants to embrace that identity to point. But he also wants to warn us about two pitfalls that we can easily fall into as we seek to cultivate our, 
our crafts as we seek to work well in this world. There's two pitfalls. I think one of them the church in America has fallen into and has been in for the past like 80 years and it's slowly going away. And the other one I think is really current to where we are right now. So back in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, hey, if you're, you're the salt of the world, but if salt loses its saltiness, how is it going to get restored? See, salt is a cultivating word as well. Salt uh, in that day, just like today, it was meant to cultivate food. You put food on salt and it brings the natural, the things that are there out, flavor. Jesus is saying, hey, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be in this world to cultivate it. And how do we do that? Well, we point people back to the beauty of the gospel. We work well and our good work points people back to Eden. But if we slide into a posture of condemnation, that's a great way for salt to just lose its flavor completely. So Jesus is saying this, don't slide into a posture of condemnation because when you do that, you diminish the beauty of the gospel. Like, okay, what do you mean? Unpack that for me. So there's culture all around us. People are making things. People, whether they, like, they admit it or not, whether they know God, they're in the image of God and they can't help creating too. But they're broken. They're sinners. They haven't met God and been made new yet. So some of the things that sinful people make are messes and sinful. And the posture in America that we've adapted somehow is to have a, a posture of condemnation, to just like wag our finger at things, to be like, oh, this is a mess. I hate living here. And it's kind of like Jesus says, hey, you're supposed to be salt on this meat to bring out the flavor in it. And you're like, yeah, but I'd rather have seafood. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, you're putting me here to do that. Do you know how bad it is? It's a mess. But Jesus is saying, no, no, that's what I'm calling you to do. And if we have this posture of condemnation, we're not going to point people back to the beauty of the gospel. And it's really, I want to be clear here. I say a posture of condemnation. There are certain things we should absolutely condemn as Christians. Pornography, for, an ex for example. And absolutely, porn stars can get saved. People addicted to pornography, they can be freed and saved. Absolutely. There's people in this room, that's their testimony. But pornography as an industry is something Christians just have to say, this is irredeemable, it should be abandoned. So there's certainly times where we have to condemn things. The Nazis, for goodness sake. Uh, Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they were alive in, when Nazis were rising to power. They didn't start like a Nazi Bible fellowship group to help Nazis be better at their jobs. No, they said, this thing should be abandoned. Let's walk away from it. So certainly, as Christians, as culture is happening all around us, there are going to be things that we condemn. But if our posture, if the, the natural disposition that we just slide into is to just like always condemn, always to wag our finger, we're never going to win anybody over to the beauty of the gospel. We don't have anything to invite them to. All condemnation can, can invite people into is more condemnation. Like, so let's just say you do win somebody over by yelling at somebody. They're like, okay, now what do we do? Uh, grab a sign. We're going to yell. Like, and I actually, Amy and I encountered this firsthand. We were newly married. We're at Santa Monica uh, on the beach, and there were these street preachers. And God uses street preachers. I'm not trying to say street preaching is bad, but these pe these street preachers were bad. You guys all have, you know them. <laughs> and for some reason, they had a microphone set up so that the crowd could interact back and forth, which is a terrible idea if you're saying condemning hateful things to people. Um, and one of the guys in the, in the crowd asked a really good question. It was an honest question. I think it was a, a great question. He said, hey, you're, you're telling me and all of us here that we're evil. Can I, can I please get a working definition of evil? Like, wh what do you mean when you say, I'm evil? And I'm like, oh, this is great. How's he going to respond? <laughs> so the street preacher is like, how dare you? 
How dare you? How dare you question God? And moves on. I was young, and I was like, well, let's take a stab at this. I don't recommend this, by the way, because I got to see the underbelly of street preaching. So I go up to the microphone. Again, I'm young. I wouldn't do this today. I say, excuse me. Hi. Thank you. I have a question. What do you do with Jude 22? Uh, what does that say? Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. At which point, I'm convinced there's a street preaching mafia, because these guys dragged me back to this, like, behind their tent and started screaming at me. It was, like, kind of scary. And there was a woman who was there who was not a believer, who was just watching all this exchange and was like, I want to see what happens. And so she follows us back. (laughs) And so we're back there, and they're screaming at me, yelling at me. It it was a little nerve-wracking. I was like, well, this this is a stupid way to die. But you know what happened to that woman after that? She wasn't like, oh, thank you. This was so helpful. I see my sin. I see my sin as an offense to a holy God. I see it as brokenness. I want to repent of that. No, you know what she said? That wasn't very nice. And she walked away. (laughs) See, if we have a posture of condemnation, we can't win anyone over to anything. We're not going to point them back to Eden. We're just going to point them to being pointers. So that's that's the pitfall Jesus wants us to avoid here. He says, if you lose your saltiness... If you diminish the beauty of the gospel, you're going to slide into a posture of condemnation and you're going to waste everybody's time. American Christianity, that was really popular. Those people are dying out. They're going away. Just wait. They'll be gone in your lifetime. The posture that I think we've adopted in American Christianity is one of consumption. And that's the other thing Jesus, I think, is warning us about when he talks about you're the light of the world. Don't hide your light. And the way I think we hide our light today is by adopting a posture of consumption. And when we do that, we diminish the hope of the gospel. So that's what Jesus is saying by saying, don't hide your light. He's saying, don't diminish the hope of the gospel. What do you mean by that? Well, we live, nobody creates culture from nothing. We live in an era where people who came before us were making things, and we kind of inherit the world they made for us. And so if you're not a Christian, you have no idea what I'm going to be talking about for the next two seconds, but just hang in there. American Christianity in America in the 70s, 80s, and 90s adopted a posture as it relates to the culture of copying. So uh, they were like, what, what music is cool? Okay, let's just take that and we'll plug like 14 Jesuses into that and then we'll repackage it and sell it. It was just copying. And like that was, I'm not trying, I went to a Newsboys concert. I'm not trying to like totally knock the Newsboys or anything like that. But Like, what happened with that, one of the unintended consequences is as we were trying to relate to the world, we stopped. We just created these subcultures where we were making, like, less than good art. Can we say that? Is that safe to say that? It wasn't great, okay? And, like, and instead of, like, being salt and light in the world, we created our own little world where we thought it was safe, and we're like, oh, this is great. Well, that, the the empire that made that is slowly, it's gone, all right? Like, nobody's waiting for, like, the next big Christian rock star to come in and save the day, all right? But what happened was, and as American Christians, we kind of replaced the middleman. We just like, oh, they're copying culture. We just make it and consume it in our own way. Well, let's just get rid of that, and let's just go straight to the culture. And so what happened, what happened and what's happening today is that we have adopted a posture where we're just like, we just have, we've gone upstream, we've opened our sails, and we're just like, poof, sailing, and we don't even ask questions about it. Like, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not up here at all to tell you what TV shows you should watch, what music you should listen to, 
or, or even how much. I'm not, okay? <laughs> what I am here to tell you, though, is like when we just have a posture of consumption, when we don't ask questions, we diminish the hope of the gospel. How? Well, you see, everything out there, every business, every piece of art is telling you something about the world. They're saying, this is, this is the good life. Like BMW commercials, this is the good life. Movies, this is how the world should be. This is why it's not this way, and this is what you need to do to make it that way. And if we're just constantly consuming those things and never asking questions, before you know it, you're going to be in the image they want you to make, or they wanted to make of you. Words, sorry. So what happens in American Christianity, I think, is that we've had such a posture of consumption, we've lost our distinctiveness. And when we lose our distinctiveness, we lose the hope of the gospel. This happened to a people group in Europe uh, hundreds of years ago. A, a bunch of Jews were living in Europe and facing intense persecution. And so what I'm about to say, it's understandable why this was their approach. Like, they were, they were being killed. Anti-Semitism was, like, on the rise. And so what they did was they, they, they called it the pariah. They said, okay, we're not going to be distinctively Jewish when we go out in public. We're going to hide our Judaism, and we're going to get into these places of cultural elites. And then once we're in the cultural elite, then we'll, like, we'll come out and we'll like, hey, guys, we're going to change things for us. Well, it never happened. And actually, uh, a Jewish writer by the name of Hannah Aretz um, criticizes that movement, and this is what she says about it. She said, when they gave up their distinctiveness, they lost their prophetic voice. So as Christians, if we're just constantly consuming, we're going to give up our distinctiveness. And when Christians lose their distinctiveness, the hope of the gospel is harder to find. Okay? Jesus says, your salt, your light, that's it. There's nobody else out there who's salt and light. And so if we've adopted a posture where we're just not asking questions, I'm not, I, please, if we ever watch a movie together, I don't want you to be that person that's like, just asking questions and trying to apply it in front of me. I'm not, I'm not saying be annoying, but I'm saying like we need to ask questions about the world we live in. Like, what does Don Draper think the good life is? What do you think the good life is? What does Frank Underwood think about power? Hey, does God think anything about power? I mean, we just, these are just simple questions we need to ask. And when you start asking those questions, you can put uh, what Greg Kukul calls, you can put rocks in people's shoes. Like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. We can point people back. So those are the two ways that Jesus is saying, hey, avoid these things. I, want, I put you here for a reason. Just, if you haven't been left behind by mistake. You're here to be a signpost. Don't lose that signpost ability by both criticizing and then by both consuming. Like, be distinctive. Point people to the hope of the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, I have answers. I don't. Um, I think there's a couple, a couple different applications for us, depending on what you do and where you are. So if you're in this room and you're an artist, there's hope for the artists in this room. Listen, there has never been a more important time to be an artist. I think right now is the most crucial time for good artists who love the Lord to do their work with excellence, to put it on display, to create wonder. Why? Because Christians have done a terrible job capturing people's imaginations. You see, we, we like to think like, oh, I can just give you all the reasons, all the reasons why I believe in Christianity. Isn't this wonderful? Look what we did. Look at the cathedrals. They're so pretty. And people are like, I don't care. You know, uh, like one Catholic philosopher says this, we live in a post-reason age. 
Reason won't do it anymore. We need to capture the imaginations. So if you're an artist, you have an incredibly important job in this day and age. Your job is to make art that will create wonder, that people will be like, hey, this is, this is good. I, I don't, I, there's something about this. J.R.R. Tolkien, famous writer, said this, like, write stories that are so beautiful they have to be true. Write stories that point people to beauty. See, people are in the image of God, just like you and me. There's, there's not one person that you're going to bump into who isn't in the image of God. They don't know it, but they were made to live in Eden, and they're outside of Eden. When you make things that are like Eden, they long for that. They're attracted to that. So keep making good art. I've said this before. I will say it again. There is no such thing as Christian art. Just like there's no such thing as Christian carpentry and Christian architecture, there is no such thing as Christian art. There is good art and there is bad art. Stop making bad art. (laughs) For those of you in the marketplace, for those of you who uh, are entrepreneurs or work jobs, well, you all work jobs, but you know what I mean. (laughs) For those of you you have, you've been given this paradox to live in today. I hope you kind of feel it. You see, your work has become increasingly more important. You're in the image of God. This is what God bearers do. You're here to point people. But at the same time, it's become increasingly less significant. You don't get your identity from it. You're not whole and complete because you were the top salesman in your department. And that's a paradox, a tough place to live. How do we navigate that? How do we walk in a place where it's like, hey, I want to do things super well, but not get my identity from it? Well, I have no idea the answer to that, and that's something you're going to be walking through for the rest of your life. You're welcome. (laughs) But here's what I do know. Secular jobs are significant. If you think about even the Old Testament, how many secular people did God use? Amos, he was a farmer. Esther, she was a queen in a foreign land. All right, like God uses secular people and he doesn't use them just to call them into ministry. Like you guys, what you're doing is really important. So when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, I'm gonna need job retraining. Like there aren't gonna be a need for pastors there. You guys have skills that will carry on into that. All right, so don't think what you do is insignificant. You're part of the plan that Jesus had to leave people here to point people back to Eden. Like there are people in your offices who will never step foot in a church but you can be a signpost that comes to them saying, hey, I'm different. Well, don't say that. You know, that's... <laughs> but what about those of you who don't feel like you have a significant job at all? What about those of you who are like, hey, I came out here to be a writer and I'm stuck at Starbucks and I hate it. And I, you know, I came out here to be an engineer and I'm working at In-N-Out and I love that, but I hate what I do. Here's the thing. Those of you who are in jobs that you don't want, do the best you can there. You bloom where you are planted. You're just there for a season. God doesn't have you there permanently, but he has you there, and it's not a mistake. Why does he have you there? Because the people around you need to be pointed back to a place they were made to live. And listen, you're like, but what I do is so insignificant. Listen, God used a farmer to save a woman's life. I think he can use you. C.S. Lewis once said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Listen to that. Say it again. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, 
I find, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Everyone that you bump into, everyone you brush shoulders with, was made for another world. You are a citizen of that other world. You're from the future. <laughs> Point them back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, that you saved us and planted us somewhere. God, I pray that we would all take hold of the identities that you've given us, that the family business of God is that we're, we're in your image, so we're creators. God, I pray that you would help us to go into the marketplace, to go into the, the places you've called us, and be bold and be brave for you. God, I pray that this church and the people of this church really are hope pointing people back to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.